the whole thing is interesting to me in the category of how we think about the end justifies the means and short-term gains for long-term ambiguity. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. We're going to talk about this catastrophic dam burst in Kokova, the Kokova Dam in the in Ukraine. On the and I'm I'm still a little hazy on the pronunciation here, so do bear with me, listeners. The Dnipro River in southern it's in southern Ukraine, mm, but Cameron's Ukrainian pronunciation. That's right. Yeah, checks out. So it's been a long time since we discussed Ukraine. Obviously, war in Ukraine continues. And the situation over there is quite dire. And this is one example. There's a huge squabble, first of all, over how this happened. It seems likely that Russia deliberately sabotaged the dam. But there are also some, you know, some people have looked at it and said, well, you see the way that one of the bridges gives way or the road rather gives way. That points to structural features that have been damaged for a while. But either way, this this dam supplies water to a system of irrigation canals so we're already talking about sunflower crops being compromised wheat. it's yep we're talking i've about heard wheat. up to like 25 percent of southern ukraine's irrigation comes through this system that's right yeah also people's you know drinking water is affected and one person pointed out that they're going to have to start likely trucking water in so this is that which is a logistical nightmare especially in in a war-torn region so this is going to be a humanitarian crisis and not to mention the water does although this likely won't be that big of an issue we can talk about that for a second but the water does also supply cool cooling water for the largest nuclear power plant in the world and that nuclear power plant has already been a subject of some anxiety because of increasing attacks around the plant and for very obvious reasons i think it has six reactors for very obvious reasons that is not very safe so there there are concerns on a number of different levels but you see the you see how many lives are affected by this one vital piece of technology and it's it's just this kind of cascade effect that's happening right now yeah so i i think the Part of the thing where, you know, so it's classic. I mean, this has been the whole Ukrainian-Russian thing where everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else saying they did it. Um, certainly is most of what I've read says, look, there's been reports of Russia mining. This is blown up from the inside. They held it. So probably that's where it came from. But the fact of the matter is, is it hurts everybody. So it's a, it's one of those decisions where it's, I'm going to do something destructive that I deem will hurt. It hurts me, but it hurts me worse than it hurts you which at the point in which you're in that level of decision-making, that's a, a sorry state to be in. So nobody nobody wins long-term from this. Um, maybe minor delays in the Ukrainian offensive. Maybe it cuts off water to Crimea and Russian-held territories there, but it also still damages Ukrainian agriculture, perhaps their nuclear reactor, though it has backup plans. Um, so it's just one of those things that, to me, is kind of endemic of warfare where you're you're left with things that well i I think i like to live in a world in which there are good or bad things that happen and there's a clear this was beneficial to these people at the loss to this it's it's almost like 
the opposite of zero sum, where a lot of things yeah. have to happen, which somebody deemed to be strategic that in the long run, um, the, so the long-term impact is never good, but the, it has a short-term, a short, a, a, a catastrophic or very exciting short-term something for an unknown long-term outcome. Well, if you remember when we had my dad, Stuart McAllister, on the podcast a while ago, and we talked about the war in Ukraine, he looked at, he drew on his extensive reading and knowledge of Russian history, and it wasn't very encouraging when he talked about the tactical military strategies of mm -hmm. Russia, which essentially is just throw as much manpower and force at something as you can with little regard for the life lives of the soldiers for instance but also just with little regard for some sort of long-term strategy it's just inflict as much damage as possible which and is russia, why and russia yeah. had blown this one up in world war ii right yep yeah and so you see and again putin is cut from that same kind of cloth he he thinks in very in highly territorial terms as what was who was the professor who suddenly found himself going viral at the University oh, of Chicago? Who was you, that guy? Oh, I'm not sure. we talked me. about him. It was a very we'll we'll try to add him into the show notes. It's it's and yeah, he had kind of a an interesting name. But one of the things is professor of political science at the University of Chicago gave a lecture on Ukraine several years before the war. And Nathan's looking it up, so we'll likely have him here in a second. John but Mersheimer. So John Mersheimer. So Professor John Mersheimer. What's really funny about that, I'm sure he found himself surprised to be, you know, he, he recorded that. That was recorded years ago. And then this war happened, and suddenly everybody wants a quick crash course on what is going on and, and wants to make sense of this war. And now he's he's 20 million views and counting. I mean, that it's it's amazing that some academic lecture. Now he's he's a very spirited presenter, by the way, and it's worth seeing that. You may not agree with everything that he says, but one of the points that he made that I thought was really helpful was that Putin does not think like a 21st century politician. He thinks he thinks very much in terms of territory and might and seizing territories. I mean, you're almost, it's almost like you're, you're going back in time, but he points out that it's not that we in the West, America, and in Europe are so far ahead of everybody else. He points out that a lot of foreign powers think in what we would we would believe to be outdated terms. Oh, they're thinking in, in terms of all these territories. He points out China thinks like this, Putin thinks like this. So maybe we're a little bit backwards sometimes when we look at this. So Putin wants to move this needle forward, and he's willing to... Part of what makes him so dangerous is that relentlessness. That's why people were watching that are watching that power plant, for instance, with hawk eyes. Because if you're willing to do quote whatever it takes, destroy whatever it takes to move the needle forward, to inflict massive damage on a huge scale, I mean, yeah, why that's, not? That's a that's a great target. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not and saying I even, that. To, so, and I even heard one com commenter um, say that. Prepare to see more things like this as right. Ukraine pushes more and Russia gets more desperate. Um, this is a type of a thing. It won't be an isolated incident, which I mean, this and like, like I'm not saying that this will happen, but the same thing happens figurative. Well, actually, literally, when you use a nuclear weapon, 
you're going to you're going to injure yourself one way or the other you're just going to inflict yep. more damage while injuring yourself on the other so um so i i guess the 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 category to me is the whole thing is interesting to me in the category of how we think about the end justifies the means and short-term gains for long-term ambiguity yeah and deep seeds of bitterness and resentment that go back many many years ago and that are in some cases even religious in nature over over the territory i think this is just we are living in a moment where we need to recover a real sense of a, a real historical consciousness i think that's that's and i and that's happening in many ways nathan i'm seeing that more and more more young people i talk to it's funny. So my dad, he's a he's a history buff. And and the older I get, the more I think I'm, I'm just... I looked at my wife the other day and I said, well, I guess I'm just turning into an, an old dad after all. Now I'm interested in history. <laughs> so now give me, you know, a book on the Cold War or the Civil War and and I'm, I'm in for the night. But part of that is also we're recognizing in order to make sense of our moment right now, this has always been the case, but we're just at a place now where it's really going to be important. If we want to make sense of what's going on, we have to look to the past and we've got to. Oh, Cameron, you dinosaur. Listen yeah. to yourself. <laughs> but suddenly it's funny. My, so my dad, who's the history guy now, so when, when he, when he speaks, he, he brings in a lot of historical examples because that's just what he knows and what he loves. His audience, the people who flock to him, who want to hear more, are younger people. They are so thirsty and so interested. And I think, because when you start to read history, you, your, your, your vision of humanity is complexified and enriched. Complexified. Let me, let's, oh, complexified, yeah. So here's, a, here's, I think, a helpful example that comes from a book that Nathan and I have just read, The Need to Be Whole by Wendell Berry. I think... One of my favorite sections in that book is when he he talks about Robert E. Lee. And that's that's the very section, by the way, that he was several friends warned him, don't do this. Don't write this. If you if you say anything even remotely sympathetic about Lee, you're gonna be condemned. And he I'm I'm grateful he didn't he didn't take that advice. And so Wendell Berry makes it clear that he disparages and disagrees with slavery. And he thinks slavery is a heinous practice. But he also offers a very rich, humane, and sympathetic portrait of Robert E. Lee as a man who was torn between his, on the one hand, his, his opposition to slavery, but on the other hand, his allegiance to Virginia. Those were his people as his community. And Virginia Wendell as Berry the, in the land. Yeah, the land and the land. That's absolutely important. Yes, the land to which he belonged, to, to which his, his people, his family had belonged. And I think it's hard. To, I'd have to, I, I need to pull the book up and, and look at this precisely the way he phrased it. But Barry basically says, we have a very hard time understanding that nowadays because we're so deracinated and we don't see ourselves as belonging to people. We see ourselves as our own people. We're the masters of our own ship. But he said, you know, not so long ago, you, you were part of 
this community and these people and your life was, you were pledged to them. So in that sense, he says almost that Lee didn't really have much of a decision. And so he casts him as a tragic figure. He did, so while he, so here's the complex view he and the ambiguous one that, that Wendell Berry gives you in the book. While repudiating slavery himself, that is Barry, he nevertheless holds a lot of he he has some some real respect for Lee's decision and regards a certain sees a certain nobility, tragic nobility in it. Do you think that's a, is that is that a fair way to characterize it, Nathan? Yeah. So I'm I'm turning I'm trying to anticipate where you're going with Putin then. Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show that when we when we actually look into history, we're going to come to a place where we don't get these oh, and I wasn't really applying this to Putin. I was well, I, I was more I, I looking think I was at, seeing the link though. In the sense that you're saying, are you, are you that, saying the link? Well, I, I only in the sense that and, and maybe so <laughs> I'm getting way speculative here, so hold on. Is that so you're talking about, you know, reading history, that's a sign you're getting old. Um, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a sign of maturity where at a certain point in your life, you start to recognize that there are certain consistencies and patterns to humanity. And you're getting a more ossified view of human nature that when we're younger and more idealistic, we think mm-hmm. things are changing faster than they actually are. And at some point in life, you get enough life experience that you recognize humans are humans and history therefore becomes valuable because it teaches us a lot about how people behave, and that therefore makes a lot more sense about our world to us now. That's a good way of putting it. And I think I go back to Solzhenitsyn often here. If ever there was a man who could, who would be in the unique position to say there are good people and there are evil people, I find myself in a Russian gulag. I am imprisoned in what one of the U.S. presidents called literally the evil empire. These guards are evil, and I am innocent. That is not what he did. And his his moral insight, when he said the, you know, basically evil cuts through every human heart. When he said that, I do think that that, I believe that that is Holy Spirit revealed truth and moral insight into human beings. To recognize, because he goes on to rec- he goes on to say that if if our roles were reversed and I was wearing the uniform and those guards were in prison attire, I would likely be doing the same thing. To see it in those terms, that's not, see, that's not overtly pessimistic. That's taking a real view of of human nature, and it's interesting that so many of our some of our social thinker theorists and psychologists. One of them being Jonathan Haidt, we we mention him from time to time, point out that a very destructive view is that life is a battle between good and evil people. Now, am I denying that there are evil people? No, absolutely not. I do happen to think that Putin is an evil man. I do. But I also believe that evil cuts through every human heart. And I think none of us are above temptation. And I think all of us have very complex ties to the places we find ourselves, the people we're surrounded by, and have sets of allegiances that sometimes are elusive even to us. And history can help us to see that. History can, again, be a kind of balm to the soul in the sense that it gives you some humility. 
Well, there's there's an interesting sense there too. I think when we judge people who do big things, is that the reason a lot of us haven't done massively destructive things is because we aren't the commander of a huge army. Exactly. So, yeah. so you can you can have the same style or vindictive attitude or the ends justifies the means, um, but you just don't have the means to enact it. On a smaller it. scale. Right, yeah. On a smaller so, scale, yeah. That's right. I mean, and again, we could do we could do the little Solzhenitsyn's thought experiment here too and say, were I in a position of power and might similar to that of, of a Putin or somebody else, would I, I mean, can I say so certainly that I would act completely different differently that i would be you know a glorified humanitarian okay well hang on because we we want to be careful here because that people don't misunderstand us because we're not saying ah well you know people are just a product of their time and is it nature or nurture well you know this is human nature and this is the corrupt nurture that this person received and that's why they are the way they are um that does not excuse anything that's a description no not an excuse and, I called him evil for a reason. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's so there's that side to it. The flip side of it is is that the worst conclusion that you can take from that is therefore to say, well, I can't learn from it and preemptively mm. choose or better or train myself to be otherwise. And and I think that's where, you know, Height's idea of the rider and the elephant of the, the conscientious decisions that you're making being a very small percentage of the decisions that you make and there's this subconscious elephant below you that's mainly running the operating process of how you're navigating the world beneath you um the 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 goal of discipleship is to train the elephant to be more obedient yes. to the will of the rider so whether or not you have a conscious subconscious um portion to how you behave and whether or not you're actually making rational decisions or you're filling with your gut and then post hoc justifying them that's important to know but that's not an indictment on the project of integrity and thoughtfulness and conforming to an image or a style or a, a series of habits that grow and shape us in a certain way. So just want to lay that out there very clearly of what we are saying and what we're not saying. You have to be willing to be an alien in these major situations. You have to be willing to be explicitly an alien. If you're to just to name some big names, which are always runs the risk of, of, Pointing to major or or big or extreme examples always runs the risk of taking us out of practical reality. But if if you look at a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, somebody like that, you have to be willing to be the anomaly, to step outside of that system and look like a crazy person, like a fool, like a fanatic, and suffer for it. Robert E. Lee could have made a different decision, but it would have been a largely incomprehensible one to many people. But if your ultimate allegiance was to the kingdom of God, that's what ends up happening. So that's why discipleship, you have to, I mean, it does require training. If we're going to live our lives for Christ, there are times of relative stability where that doesn't get in the way of your everyday cultural activities. But during times of turmoil, it likely will get in the way. And that's where the training is necessary for us to follow Jesus, even if it comes at the cost of being ostracized or persecuted, which, of course, for many Christian brothers and sisters around the world is the case right now. So, yeah, I think knowing our hearts, knowing our proclivities and our penchant for evil, but also 
balancing that out and knowing that we were made to be transformed. Human beings are made transformable. We can't. I like, you said we're convertibles a couple podcasts ago. We're convertibles. That's stuck in my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, we also could be transformers. So think about that. Well, but just kidding. But we we can real moral growth and change. We are made for for that. So we need to recognize that it's once we once we have that balance of recognizing yes we we are fallen and evil comes naturally sin comes naturally to us so to speak but we are also made to change and to grow morally so that gives us i think the needed balance to work toward change and toward real spiritual maturity and also not under not to underestimate our own the temptation to evil in our own hearts as we go about that task. Well, there you go. You just went from a dam blowing up to evil in the human heart. We did come a long way from that, from the dam in Ukraine, didn't we? So but I think, the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, well I was I mean, going to say, I think with regard to that. Yeah. No, you go first. Okay. I'll go first. <laughs> um, so I guess as you were saying all of that, I was just thinking through. So, what then do I want to do differently? And I was trying to think of examples where the Christian was called to inflict damage on themselves in order to damage the enemy more, biblically speaking, from a mm. New Testament perspective. And that I'm coming up with zero examples of that. So <laughs> it, it's, it seems like there are two things there, that the end justifies the means is Machiavelli, not the Messiah. So there's the opposite of that. And then there's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a compulsion that I think comes from the heart of the Christian and to jump into broken situations, not to break situations. So you jump into the broken situation, you say, okay, what do we do to help? So that is the response mm -hmm. to uh, catastrophe in the world around us is not always, you know, sitting on our thumbs and moralizing, but to look for ways in which we're, yeah, partly I, I think, you know, part of my prayer often is, is like, Lord, help me remember who's in control of the world and then help me know what my responsibilities are as a result of that. As, as just a way yeah, of like, who's running the balance. show and just because the Lord is in control doesn't mean that there's nothing for me to do. But I got to get those in the right order. Yes. Yeah, and I think recognizing that the Lord is in control will, you know, give to you the needed peace to be able to do your part and also, but take the burden of trying to save the world off of your shoulders. I think sometimes we can get in, that mindset is easy to get into in the modern world because we tend to think we have more control than we do. And part of what makes our moment so creepy, I think for so many people is that we are, we're seeing just growing escalation all around us. We're seeing it in the United States. We're seeing growing political unrest. And then we see what's happening in Ukraine. It goes out of the news for a little while. And meanwhile, the war is continuing. It is, it's chaotic on the ground over there. It has not stopped. And then you get more murmurations of this. And there's, there can be a real sense of fear and guilt that creep in when we think, well, how are we going to fix all this? Well, you're going to fix it, but you can do your part, whatever that part is. And you can bet, I mean, you can bet a lot of Christians in that area are already mobilizing for action and offering aid and relief and helping these people. We can be in prayer. And some of us, maybe some of us, maybe the Lord is nudging some of us to 
help in some way. Maybe we have that ability. Maybe we work in some of those corridors of power. I don't know. Connection with the church but there. we do our part. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, a trip or, or you know, maybe, you know, you're somebody who's who's got experience with coordinating the logistics of trucking in water, which will be extremely vital. So, yeah, it's it's recognizing that, yeah, the Lord is in, in, indeed in control, but he's also orchestrated this so that we we have we have a role to play. We get there's, to collaborate with our Lord. There's a sense here when you're to loop way back around, you're talking about people who think in terms of land and of holding and of power. And have you ever witnessed a kid who, say, built a, a Lincoln log house or a tower out of magnets or something, and they think that somebody is coming to take it and they just smash it themselves first? Yes, before the other person that. can break it down. I mean, uh, you're nodding and smiling there. I bet most of us have seen something like that um, where there's a, I'll be the one to destroy it. it, it there's there's if a I sense of- If I can't have it, nobody can. If I can't have it, nobody can, yeah. What, what, what is that, um, more broadly speaking? It's a sense of probably selfish pride, ultimately, I think, which is at the root of so many of our most grave actions. And again, it's, yeah, you can start with smashing a Lincoln log, but you can carry that same behavior into, there are plenty of people who do that in the workplace, by the way. You know, if, I mean, there are, there are instances of people who sabotage a project, for instance. If I, hey, if I can't control this project, nobody can. I'm taking this thing down. This deal is going away. And it's the same. It's it's a bigger instance. This person now has more power and resources at their disposal, but they're still smashing the Lincoln logs. So I think there's something very profound in that, which is why I'm wary of people who observe children and say, oh, look, it's Lord of the Flies. Look, you see these little depraved sinners. I mean, Part of it is also just children learning how to navigate the moral space of the world and just growing. But it's true, you do see human nature from a very early age. And those, and that's why we work with our children to to try to, if you're a good parent, you're, you're going to talk through these instances. You're, if you're a good parent, by the way, you, you notice that... <laughs> When you're dealing with with a child, and when you you go in, when you're disciplining a child, it's never a quick, it's never a quick process. Mm. It requires long conversations. You have to process through what just happened. You have to ask a lot of questions. All right, so why did we smash that? Well, how do you feel about that now? And you have to you basically reconstruct mentally what what was going on there, and you have to do this over and over again, and you're you're learning to navigate the moral space of the world. And that's, that's a, that, again, that's it's painstaking, it's slow, and it requires time. And I think so often we're, we're just primed to want to just move ahead full steam. I hear you blaming Putin's mother, but, you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many, how many Lincoln Logs did, did Putin smash when he, was, when he was a kid? So, yeah, Lincoln Logs to, you know, KGB to where he is now. So but, the, the the whole thing then, so what's the, what's the, and, and there doesn't have to be a practical takeaway to every, everything that we see in the world, but just to stimulate us to think a little bit about the sense in which the, the, the well, idea of, of holding and power and grasping and having does lead to a when, whole lot of fighting and brokenness. And I think mm -hmm. crossing boundaries of what's intended for humanity. And so 
anytime that we elevate ourselves to positions of power or authority beyond um, our rightful place in the kingdom of God, there's always going to be destruction in the world because it turns out we're not very good gods. Yeah, and I think taking a hard look at the place of pride in human affairs and human life in general and seeing its smaller scale outworkings in our everyday lives can be a very helpful, if painful, exercise. You know, by God's grace, most of us don't have huge amounts of power at our disposal, but we certainly make decisions and sometimes out of pride that are spiritually catastrophic. We might not see dams breaking and people may not be losing their lives immediately, but the spiritual world is absolutely real. And if we're living quiet lives of total and complete pride, it's a very dangerous place to be. And we can see the outworkings on a dramatic scale when we look at a Putin, but it doesn't, it needs, we're never, we're never in a place where we don't want to, to look at ourselves as well. And I think, again, the balance that we've got there is we look at, we look at the human heart, we recognize it is fallen. We recognize that our Lord himself was the one who, who said it's not, <laughs> it's out of, it's not what goes into you, but what comes out of you that, that, that is of moral import and out of the heart come all of these malicious things, but we are And there will be wars and rumors of wars, he once said. Wars and rumors of wars, yeah. But we are also made to, we are made for moral growth. Our Lord has made us that way and we can grow and we can change and we ought to, but we have to work intentionally toward that. And so may that be true of all of us who call Christ our Lord. But you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.